0: Excel Pro. For some reason, chemistry just fascinated me. So I knew I wanted to be a chemistry major. I've never changed from that. I went into college becoming a chemistry major. I came out a chemistry major. But I thought I would do research. I thought I would be a chemist. thought I would be a professor. And it turned out I was a menace in the laboratory, an absolute menace. We're talking ether fires, broken thermometers.
1: Welcome to Excel Pro IP Law, where we provide interviews and products to accelerate your professional development. I'm Neil Ungerleiter. Today, we're going to talk about patent eligibility reform. Our guest is Jamaica Zoliga. Jamaica is a partner at Seinfarth. We talk about patent eligibility and patent reform for healthcare, life sciences, bioinformatics, pharmaceuticals, and more. Excel Pro's interviews and products help to improve your day-to-day job performance and accelerate professional development. For a transcript of this episode, and to learn more about the Excel Pro IP law community, visit joinexcelpro.com. that's J-O-I-N-A-C-C-E-L-P-R-O.com. And now for our conversation with Jamaica Zaliga. Patent eligibility and patent reform are hot topics for both patent holders and attorneys these days. We are here to talk about issues surrounding patent eligibility reform with Jamaica Zalega. Jamaica, thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me on.
1: Can you give our listeners some background on SciFarth and your role there?
0: Sure. We're a full-service international law firm. We have 16 offices, about 900 attorneys. Most importantly here, we've been considered a Tier 1 firm in both healthcare law and also intellectual property litigation. So I'm an IP partner here at SciFarth. I'm a member of the health law practice because of my background. I have a chemistry degree with a biology minor. And my role is basically to help companies that assist Uh, the healthcare industry with patent licensing, patent prosecution, litigation if necessary, and also to weigh in on some FDA issues as they come up.
1: How does patent eligibility impact healthcare?
0: So there are many inventions that can be patented relating to healthcare. Most of the things that people think about are the stuff you can touch, feel, or that you have to take as medicine. So medical devices, monitors, hip implants, of course, IV medicines, oral medicines, all of that is pretty simple to understand as being patentable. It always has been patentable. However, healthcare has really evolved, and certain innovations are not patent-eligible. And the Supreme Court has really mucked things up and made it very difficult to understand what is patent eligible and what isn't patent eligible. It used to be everything under the sun made by man. So that's what the easy test used to be. Now there's a two-part test. Basically, for healthcare purposes, you can't patent an abstract idea, a law of nature, mathematical formulas, natural phenomena. And some of the biggest advances we have nowadays actually are kind of in that area. So in order to be patent eligible, you have to add, and this is sadly in the Supreme Court words, more. So it becomes very difficult to determine whether you can get a patent in certain areas. And in particular, the latest hottest areas in healthcare. So when I talk about those areas, I'm mentioning things like bioinformatics. So nowadays, there is huge amounts of information that we are gathering from all kinds of computer sources. So we are gathering information on patient data, on health records, on insurance data, Medicare claims. We have all of this data, and some of the best inventions and innovations that we have right now are how to process that data. So what can we learn from that data? Can we learn which doctors are best? Can we learn which techniques are best for particular surgeries? What outcomes are best? How do we determine trends? So are we moving forward with respect to racial barriers, racial discrimination in healthcare? There's all of these areas that we are improving and we have innovations that improve it that are based on the intake of massive amounts of data. However, that can create a problem with patent eligibility. So the way that I like to think about patent eligibility is that if a fantastically amazing team of people could possibly have all of those resources in front of them, and using pen and paper, maybe a calculator, come up with the same answers, you're going to have a problem with patent eligibility. So instead, you have to be creative in how you patent things. You have to incorporate new technologies. You can't just say a computer does this, even though that's what's really necessary in order to do these types of calculations. So with digital health, that's one aspect that becomes very important. If you want to determine even also what genes are causing a particular disease or condition, each one of those things, it's easy to not be patent eligible. Again, if you think about the the most amazing team working with every piece of data and just perfect as possible, which is kind of what a computer is. So that's considered to be not patentable. So we have to think about the impact of it. We have to think about how it's useful, all kinds of considerations. The other area that's really impacted by patent eligibility is genetics and is gene editing. The concept of finding genes that are related to particular diseases, testing for those genes, as well as making treatments. So a lot of the biological treatments that are being used today that are based on things that are naturally occurring. So you realize that in order to get some kind of response, a molecule has to land in a receptor. So you make more of those molecules, more receptors get filled, you get a better impact. If you just make the molecule that exists in nature, well, that's a law of nature. Even if it took you forever to find that molecule, to get it delivered correctly, it's still natural. So you have to think on a lot of different levels. And unfortunately, our patent eligibility requirements, because as I said, the Supreme Court waded in and decided that a test that had been in place for many years, I think Perhaps even more than hundred years was not sufficient. Now we have this two-step process where you have to figure out if there's something "quote unquote" more than just nature. No matter how much effort was put into it, so that's how patent eligibility is affecting healthcare. One third area that everybody talks about is AI, so artificial intelligence. Again, this goes hand in hand with bioinformatics. You have gaps in your data. So you train the computer to fill in those gaps. Well, is that really an innovation? So what it does is it requires a lot of creativity. And then sometimes you just don't get a patent on something, no matter how fundamental, no matter how much money you can make out of it, no matter how important it is, you don't receive the rewards you would if we were to think about patents as being provided equitably for things that really
1: advance the world. And for bioinformatics, as you mentioned, you're dealing with these extremely large data sets and a very complicated software and the hardware architecture that goes with it. From a patent eligibility perspective, are there different concerns for bioinformatics as opposed to other fields where you're also dealing with large quantities of data, such as precision manufacturing?
0: It's similar. I think the main difference is that you are, in many ways, compared to precision manufacturing, where you can say that there's a useful good at the end. Here, the useful good is knowledge. So you can frame your claim in precision manufacturing as an improvement of the process of making blah, 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 based on the following set of steps. So again, it's the blah, blah, blah that takes it out of that realm. Here it's like understanding the effect of hospital stays on patient health. It still doesn't have that concreteness that the supreme court is looking for. So often you do your best to make it towards a process that people can understand and something that is concrete. But a lot of what bioinformatics is is the double whammy where you're trying to understand laws of nature. So so it's like you have a process for understanding disease progression <laughs> using thousands and thousands of sources in various configurations. We don't use the term algorithms. (laughs) So a lot of this, again, it's about creative prosecution. It's about persistent prosecution. So explaining over and over again, how this is an innovation, how this is more than what a human can do. And trying to dig down and hit the buzzwords may I just say, that are considered what you need for patent eligibility. So the patent eligibility requirements in healthcare have significant hurdles that I have to overcome as a prosecutor. And moreover, some of them are what I would call artificial. And it's a little bit more of a game than it necessarily should be.
1: Excel Pro. Thanks for listening so far. If you're enjoying this, you'll definitely like to check out my conversation with Simon Pullman, where he discussed Hollywood, video games, franchises, and how intellectual property and copyright law work in the 2020s media landscape. Now back to my interview with Jamaica's Liga. And in terms of patent eligibility reform, what are some major issues around patent eligibility reform and healthcare?
0: So a lot of the patent eligibility reform is not necessarily directed to healthcare, except when it comes to genetic testing, genetic editing, biologics, making medicines that are derived pretty much from natural phenomena. However, the reform efforts keep coming up, and they keep dying. And of course, the reform needs to come from Congress, given that the Supreme Court has spoken and refuses to take any other cases, really, to try to clarify things. So Congress introduced back in 2022 another patent eligibility reform. And the way that they're trying to change patent eligibility is to give a fixed list of things that are not patent eligible. So in other words, everything but this list, you should be able to get a patent. They want to cover everything that they possibly can and meet everything. So now the latest language is a process that is a non-technological, economic, business, social, cultural, or artistic process. So non-technological, that will process. A mental process performed solely in the human mind. So they're trying to get at the computer. Occurs in nature wholly independent of any human activity, a gene as it exists in the human body, and then mathematical formula, quote-unquote, apart from a useful invention or discovery. So what you see in reform is a difficult concept of trying to decide what exactly is patent eligible. And every time that there's a reform effort, there's tension in the different technological areas. Like the computer high-tech industry doesn't want a lot of these patents that are based on business methods, that are based on algorithms, that are based on detecting data. They're not necessarily thinking of bioinformatics at all when they're thinking about this. Whereas the medical and health industry, they want protection. And again, we don't have the system of what is more important of an invention than something else. But in healthcare and pharmaceuticals, there is a sense that it's more important. That affecting health, affecting life, affecting the abilities to provide appropriate care, all of that is much more important than a widget. So why does a widget get covered? Like a widget such as a pair of eyeglasses or (laughs) gaming. So what you sense is that patent reform and patents in general are subject matter neutral and patent eligibility is subject matter neutral. However, there's not a good definition out there that is clear enough to explain and cover things that are useful, that are important. The original test really was if it was man-made it was good enough which meant if a computer did it if you took it if you took a gene and isolated it and kept it exactly the same all of that used to be hands down patentable and now it's become much more complicated and the end result is that reform is necessary but I think it's difficult it's very difficult
1: and from your perspective What's unique about doing patent litigation for these kinds of clients? So
0: what's very unique in general about pharmaceutical and med tech sectors is that there are actual systems in place and separate administrative processes for certain types of pharmaceutical and biologic medicines. So if you want to get a generic on the market, for example, there is an entire process called the Hatch-Waxman Act. It involves a very specific type of litigation There's notices. It's only before a judge. So that type of patent litigation, very specific. Then there's the Biologics Price Competition Innovation Act, so the BPCIA, which was supposed to help generic biologics come on the market. So biologics are things like Humira, which most people know about. There are some gene editing medicines now. There are things that are made from biologic products rather than discrete molecules put together like pharmaceuticals are. So the BPCIA has this very complicated structure where you're exchanging information. You're trying to decide what patents to go forward. Then you litigate those patents and then there's more patents to come. So in basic terms, these are issues that have been around forever with patent litigation. With the new digital, the more complicated issues relating to genes and genetic medicines, the unique part of that is having to overcome patent eligibility. So again, there are certain courts that will look at patent eligibility before any other process in litigation happens. So they will grant summary judgment. They will stop the whole litigation in its tracks if the other side can prove that it's not patent eligible material. So in other words, I have this amazing patent on a bioinformatics. Someone copies it verbatim. I sue them, but before we get into whether they infringe, before we get into whether my invention was invalid because someone else did it, or it would be obvious, before I get to put on evidence of my success, And how important this is and how everybody in the industry was awed at it. Before I get to do anything, the alleged infringer can file a brief requesting summary judgment and say, my patent's ineligible. And I don't get to put any of that evidence before a jury. I don't get anything. Like, it's just patent ineligible. So under those circumstances, given how confusing the law is on patent eligibility, I lose out on on several years, to be honest, where I could have been litigating against the infringing party because I have now taken up to appeal. And then the federal circuit gets to hem and haw about what patent eligibility is. Hopefully I win. It comes back down to me. And then I can go after the infringer. By that time, maybe they've stolen most of the market share because, again, the Supreme Court waited in when I think they shouldn't have. It used to be as night follows the day If you want in a patent litigation, you could get an injunction against the other side. Now you can't, now you have to prove all the normal factors of an injunction. So you have a double whammy in certain areas that are really important in healthcare and in the advancement of healthcare. And the harder you make it to get a patent and hold a patent, the less incentive there is to get a patent and also to put in the time and research. You have to protect yourself. And patents are one of the best ways of protecting your ideas and making sure that you benefit from them. So you can come up with the next idea.
1: Jamaica, you mentioned a little bit about your background earlier. What was your past IP law like?
0: So my pathway was kind of a default. So a process of elimination, shall we say. I loved math. And I thought it was the most impractical thing ever until high school. And I had my first chemistry class and I realized, wow, like math is extremely useful. And for some reason, chemistry just fascinated me. So I knew I wanted to be a chemistry major. I've never changed from that. I went into college becoming a chemistry major. I came out a chemistry major, but I thought I would do research. I thought I would be a chemist, thought I would be a professor. And it turned out. I was a menace in the laboratory, an absolute menace. We're talking ether fires, broken thermometers. I basically started doing research that was more and more abstract, and the machine still hated me, or I was bored out of my mind. I found what I really liked to do was talk to my colleagues, help the graduate students write up their experiments, and just learn about science. I still loved learning about science. So what do you do then when you don't really know what to do? You think, okay, I'll be a doctor. I mean, science. So I started taking biology classes and I liked them. There wasn't anything wrong with it, but I realized because of health issues in my family that I didn't really want to be responsible for the life and deaths of an individual person. I know this might sound harsh, but it's a reality and you have to be able to Compartmentalize and not feel for somebody who's in pain and who you're putting in more pain in order to hopefully get better. It dawned on me when my father had a heart attack that this was reality. And I'd never experienced a big illness in my family before then. So now I'm stuck realizing I really can't work in a laboratory. Like I probably would be barred. And being a doctor makes no sense for me, but I still love science what do I do? And at that time, there was a graduate student in one of the laboratories I was working in, the one that I caused the fire, not much damage. And his father had also had a chemistry degree, but then went to law school and basically sued Walmart for slip and falls. And that was the first instance that I realized, wait, like you can become a lawyer with any undergraduate degree? No qualifications at all? Then I thought more about it, I looked into it, and I was like, wow, Like there are patents out there. There are people who need to understand science. There are people that need to explain science. So when you do patent prosecution, you end up with new inventions, things nobody had ever heard of, nobody had ever thought of. So you're learning brand new things. And in patent litigation, you're having to explain concepts to a jury, to a judge, to the other side, to your own client in some respects. So... I was still able to use science. I played to my skills. I'm a very good writer. I'm a very clear speaker, and I like to explain things. So that's how I ended up in IP law process of elimination, honestly. Just knowing that I would need a job. I still loved my major. I wouldn't want to do anything else. I had to do something to make a living. So I don't think many people end up in IP law that way. Most people that I know that become IP lawyers, they actually go to graduate school. They get their PhD. By the time they get their PhD, they realize they hate it. And that's when they start thinking of an alternative career. I was lucky enough to be so bad in the laboratory and so bored
1: sometimes that I crossed it off the list really quickly. That was Jamaica Zaliga. Jamaica, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me.
0: I really enjoyed this.
1: For a transcript of this conversation and to learn more about the Excel Pro IP law community, visit joinxcelpro.com. That's J-O-I-N-A-C-C-E-L-P-R-O.com. Excel Pro's interviews and products accelerate your professional development. Our mission is to improve our members' day-to-day job performance and make career goals achievable. Thanks again to today's guest. If your colleagues in any sector of the IP law field might be interested, please let them know about Excel Pro. As our community grows, it grows more useful for its members. Remember to send your comments and career questions to questions at joinexcelpro.com. You can also call us at 614-642-2235. That's 614-64-ACCEL. Excel Pro IP Law is powered by Kaplan. The producers are J. Ray Sparks and Jeff Eisenman. The team is Shweta Kolkarni, Kaylin Cole, Jared Goff, Harrison Shapiro, Inesh Bose, Arnesh Bose, Teza Zoleta, Aliza Solario, Jessica Stillman, Matt Crossman, and me, Neil Angeliler. Remember, we excel together. See you next time.